Thank you for tuning into the Rowdy Cards podcast on RowdyCards.com. I'm your host, Patrick Greeno, and Ryan and I are going to be talking about some points that, um, well, relate to the hobby and sports. So, Ryan, you know, why don't you introduce us with your recent meeting of Jose Canseco? Absolutely. Uh, this past Saturday, I got to meet Jose Canseco for the second time in my life. Uh, I believe I discussed this on a past podcast. I met Jose Canseco at spring training 1999 he was a spring training invite for the angels and um my dad and i helped him program his new cell phone that had a voice activation feature that was new at the time and my dad happened to have the same phone so we kind of walked him through it a little bit so fast forward 20 years to 2019 and i uh, I, I got to see him at a local hobby shop. It was a fun autograph signing. Uh, Dave Stewart, Clyde Wright were also in attendance. Um, I was focused on Conseco. Um, so it was fun. Got to shake his hand briefly. And um, his his autograph isn't the most exciting thing in the world, but um, I do like autograph baseballs. I'm kind of a sucker. So at the right price, given the right opportunity, I'm happy to make that happen. And uh, it was fun. Yeah, man, that's really cool. I've met Conseco four times. And uh, always a pleasure to be able to meet him and get something signed. It's just such a cool, he's such an icon of my youth. And, and so uh, he's he's always going to be like one of the, I always have a lot of respect for Conseco for a lot of different reasons. But mm-hmm. one in just the sense that like, I always remember being a kid and being like in awe of Conseco of and his cards and, and, and just kind of what he stood for in the hobby. And so uh he's it's really cool that he still does signings and he's still very available and and he's just a, he's a good dude i'm glad that you got to meet him again i, I like i've been to this the place that that you met him at least their old location anywhere i think it was the first time i met him was there and then there was a i think i went back and met him at another place another shop and then two different times at that the 2017 national um, he makes himself very accessible and I, I really respect him for that. That's really cool. Yes, he does. Um, and those experiences are always kind of fun because you get to meet other people right. that have similar interests to you, obviously. Mm-hmm. And the guy in front of me in line had this really cool, what looked like a custom poster is maybe like a, uh, one foot by two foot poster that said uh, Dodgers World Series champion, and he was his project was to get everybody from I want to say the 1981 World Series to sign that poster. Wow, the last time the Dodgers won. Yeah. So Dave Stewart was on that team. Um, so he was there for Dave Stewart. Uh, I was there for Conseco, but we were looking. I mean, he has like Tommy Lasorda. He's got Mike Sosha, Steve wow. Sachs, all these crazy Dodgers. Right. Um, and Valenzuela. Yep, Valenzuela. Um, so we were talking about his kind of past and, um, his experiences getting autographs. He was much more of a autograph hunter and I'm more of a cart collector. So we were sort of comparing notes about how the, the two worlds combined. And, right. um, he has a lot of experience, you know, waiting after games in Dodger stadium parking lot. Um, you know, it was like who signs, who doesn't sign, who's really nice, who's a jerk. Um, so it's fun just to meet that, uh, kind of people. And if you go to any of these sort of hobby sports related events on your own, don't be afraid to s- strike up conversation with people around you. Cause 
I'd say for the most part, people in the hobby are, are friendly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, don't be afraid to talk to the people uh, who are responsible for signing autographs, like the celebrities mm-hmm. or whoever, because they're people too, you know? And so mm-hmm. just like you and I, they just happen to maybe make more money or be have more notoriety for a different v- reason, you know? And so it's, I don't have a problem going up to like millionaires and striking up conversation. Hey, you're Richard Branson. Let's let's talk about Virgin, you know, media or whatever. And so it's like, you know, I, I, I like that, that, and usually when you're just normal, you're not like obsessing over them. They, they respond in a normal way. And so I, I've kind of understood that. Like, um, when I meet a pro athlete, it's like, Hey man, you know, what was the hardest trick you had to learn recently or something like I met Sean white last year, I skated with him at a skate park. It just showed up at the skate park. I was skating and we all skated together and it was the coolest thing. Nice. I was like, That's I was awesome. like, yeah, it was really cool. I was like, Sean, what was the most recent trick you had the most trouble with? And he's like a 1080. I was like, on a skateboard? He's like, yeah, it's, I almost landed it. I just slipped at the bottom. I was like, it's incredible. That's but, insane. Yeah. And so, like, just talking to them, not, like, wanting anything from them, but just talking to them like they're people. Um, yep. I think that people, they, they you know, they, they receive that well. It's easier for them to, like, realize, hey, you know, we're just a couple of guys skateboarding. You know, one of them happens to be really well known. And then there's Sean White. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. There's, <laughs> there's Sean White, of course, and there's, like, um really nice guy and it was really nice to talk to him just like he was another skateboarder at the skate park so um that was a lot that was really cool and but i've met many pro athletes over the over my tenure and pro ball players and pro bunch of different types of professional people and so um i never had a conversation with jose canseco like and you know like normal but i i would anticipate that he's pretty easy to talk to if i had a chance to just have a conversation with the guy you know, just have a normal, like, so what are you working on right now? Like what's going on? Um, that's how I, when I met Dwyer Brown, uh, from field of dreams, I just talked to him like he was just another guy at the, at the show. And it was a really well-received uh, interaction. And with card guys, it's like that too. Like, don't be afraid to just talk to your fellow hobbyists. You know, you're, 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 we're all kind of peers in a way because we all congregate around the same sort of stuff, cards and memorabilia and sports. And so it's, it's an easy in, you know, like we're kind of all like family members in that way. And I like that about the hobby, you know, even the guys that don't like me or for one reason or another, like I, you know, we're all just kind of there part of the hobby ethos. And so I, I have a lot of respect for sort of everybody for different reasons. And so I like, I like the camaraderie that exists in the hobby. It's cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah, man. Thanks. Uh, let's move on to the shift is something I wanted, we want to talk about. We'd sort of been kind of mulling over this, this concept for a while to discuss because it's relatively new in in the sport of baseball. So if you're unfamiliar with the shift, I I, I recently read uh, Keith Law's Smart Baseball, which you should read by the way. I'll probably have a link below in YouTube and then also on the the blog, so you can just click through and check out this book. It's a really great one. Keith Laws talks about the shift in his book, and essentially what it is is predicting uh, outcomes from hitters and positioning your players um, on the field to uh, accommodate or anticipate where those balls will land so you can catch them. So, for example, you might put out different outfielders or add an outfielder or move your outfielders to one side of the, the, the field as opposed to the other, anticipating that you know you have data on this hitter that usually hits into the right field um, 
you know, in a, at a statistically significant uh, number of based on their plate appearances. And so you might position fielders on the right side of the field. You might also add a fourth outfielder with the anticipation of having a fourth outfielder will allow you to um, increase the chances of you catching the ball that is anticipated to be hit in that direction. Mm -hmm. And so there was one instance where I think Chris Bryant was, he was, uh, he was assigned to go to the outfield to be that fourth outfielder um, in anticipation of where the ball would be hit by said batter. And so that's essentially what the shift is. It's, it's, it's positioning your, your fielders um, in a way that, that anticipates batter outcome so that you can increase your probabilities of uh, making outs for that, the opposing team. Yeah. And there's a particular shift that people are very riled up about, and that's the infield shift, putting uh, three infielders on the right side of the diamond mm-hmm. because you have a left-handed batter who's got a high percentage of hard hit ground balls to that side of the field. So you're talking about a, a shortstop that is on between first and second as opposed to Correct. second and third. Yeah, so you have first baseman, second baseman, shortstop, all sort of platooning the one side of the diamond. So you're saying that you're not adding a second shortstop. You're just assigning that shortstop that you would have from second to third to first mm-hmm. to second because you're anticipating so, then, where that, that say, that left-handed hitter is going to hit a ball. Yeah, and you're risking the fact that you know now you're leaving your third baseman to essentially cover half of the diamond, but you're pretty sure that the ball's not going to even go over there in the first place. So right. that's why you call the shift, and people are kind of upset about it. It's, I, I think, um, it's just part of the game. It's it's a great strategy, and it takes advantage of sort of one trick pony hitters that that pull the ball constantly. Yeah, um, and if you look at if you go to any baseball game, minor league, major league, and you watch in between hitters, you'll see the bench coach repositioning the outfielders, the infielders, or you'll you'll just see the, the players themselves repositioning themselves. Of course. Taking a couple steps here, you know, right, left, back, forward. Right. right. And those those couple steps can mean a lot depending on where the where the balls hit. And I think the the infield shift is just a very extreme example. So people are starting to take notice of that. Yeah. Um, and there's a movement to ban the shift and I, it's like, where does it stop? If you're going to ban that, does that mean players can only move? Defensive players can only move within a certain area. I mean, like where does it end? So, well, so it's, it's just, look, we got the, the teams are using analytics. They're what they're, they're trying to do is predict outcomes for players based on, you know, their, their responses for these kinds of personality tests and these kinds of response rates. They're trying to, you know, um, predict out uh, player value. And so they, they take these things to the draft based on this information, like to help them to, to find the right kind of players. This also translates to, um, uh, uh, um, outcome prediction, on the field as well, so it's just they're 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 just where we are strategically in baseball after 150 years, and we've gotten to a place now where we're basing everything on statistics and numbers, and you know what's the likelihood of you know uh, situation X happening with with situation Y variables, and so um, I don't have a problem with the shift. I think it's just the normal course of where we are in baseball and strategy, 
and it's just kind of this the next like the current way of baseball is different than it was 10 years ago as opposed to even 10 years beyond that it's just we're just at a different place now where baseball is just played differently now i mean it's, it's essentially still the same game we always grew up loving we're just seeing more strategic moves that are um implemented in different ways that we haven't seen before so this is just the 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 next step in where baseball has is headed incrementally speaking yeah and speaking of watching the same game we've always loved uh the book smart baseball which i'm like halfway through um the author does a really good job about explaining historical context behind certain stats and how some stats we're using today have been used for 150 years they're super antiquated um and then some stats that were used 150 years ago were quickly thrown away because they were not very useful mm. but he goes through how the rules have changed throughout the game. Obviously, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were some more wacky rules going on. Um, but he gives great historical context for every sort of argument and position he makes. Right. Um, so it's not only a kind of like sabermetrics, stats, kind of nerdy baseball kind of book. It's It's like a cool historical kind of trivia book as well. So... If you're a baseball fan and you're not really into like the sabermetric sort of side of baseball, um, I think you'd still enjoy this book a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's a mathy book, so ex- expect for your brain to process data as you're reading. It's, it's a bit of a, 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 an exercise, a mental workout, but it's, it's a good one. And I, I, I would recommend it to anybody interested in, in learning more about the game. So good stuff. I'm glad we got to talk about that. Um, Moving on, some of you might, maybe some of you saw this. I, I, they, I only saw this sort of like, I don't know, tertiarily through like the grapevine, and then read and heard a little bit more about it. But 1997 Metal Universe Emerald PMG Jordan was listed and then pulled because it was like super shilled, and mm-hmm. it, w- it went to like five over five hundred thousand dollars, and then so it's been pulled. It's going to be relisted on the probably the next, the next pass and so um i saw this card in person at the 2017 national really cool card in hand really really just incredible piece and people like give it a hard time because of the like it's not in great shape i was like well fine wait for the next one of these to come along and then buy that one you know like who cares the the foil goes to the edges so it's susceptible to chipping and things those pmgs are just like that so that's pretty normal stuff but um, really fantastic card. I, I, I ran, I wrote a, published an article about these and I, I have the, almost the whole set of images of the emeralds from 97 PMG for basketball. So you can go on a rat of cards and just find it. It's, it's the whole gallery there. There's a couple cards missing, but, um, really cool stuff. You should, um, keep an eye on this auction once it's, um, passes through. I'm sure I'll, share a link to it on one of the channels somewhere because um it's a it's a notable auction and it's a great card from an awesome awesome set and if you don't know the emeralds the pmgs for basketball the first 10 were printed in green and the remaining 90 of the same 100 print run were the red ones really cool stuff i i like seeing this kind of thing and jordan stuff always floors me like the the end prices on these cards are just i mean they're ludicrous they really are um and so I'm glad we got to talk about this. Do you have any thoughts on this one, Ryan? 
So I, I think this this card is also, um, or I guess I should say this listing is a, an example of why high-end auction houses exist. <laughs> because eBay can be kind of the Wild West sometimes, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. You throw something up there, people can chill the bid, you know, all sorts of wacky stuff can happen. Right. And that's exactly what occurred with this particular listing. And luckily the, the seller was aware enough to say, okay, hold on, let's, let's take a step back and let's rethink this a little bit. So they're going to relist it on eBay, but it's going to be more of a controlled listing. I think you have to, they have some mechanism to make contact with the seller before you actually submit a bid so they can sort of vet every bid. Um, but that's why you see there's there's all these great auction houses around the country that have only high end stuff because you, the the seller whoever's consigning the the item they don't want this sort of thing to happen because um, it can ultimately affect the price and right. who ends up getting the card. Um, so it's unfortunate that that happened, but it was kind of a, a cool lesson to learn um, and to see the how the seller handled the situation. Right. Uh, I don't think a lot of sellers on eBay, they might not pay that much attention to who's bidding and how much they're bidding and the frequency of bids and, and all that. Um, so, but yeah, really, a really amazing card. I'd never seen one enlisted ever. I've never seen one in person. Um, I'd say, I mean, Jordan has, he's probably like one of the most collectible players just because of the era he played in the, in the 90s well it's he's more than that so though. many amazing cards it's more than that I, though it's it's championships i mean he's the greatest basketball player of all time you know like it's he's he he played in a time when obviously it's these high-end inserts were being printed but also just his prominence as being yeah. jordan his is he's not just a player he's a brand you know he's 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 kind of like he's a legend and so um I think he is the most collected of all players in all sports. Totally. Yeah, and we're lucky that, that if you can imagine for a second in your mind's eye, two lines intersecting. One line is the career of Michael Jordan, and the other line is um, the hobby in the 90s. <laughs> and they, like, right. they both just collide at such an amazing point. Um, and I, I'd say like top five Jordan cards, this one has to be in there. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, this is a big... Big card. There's, I mean, there are a lot of super, super elusive unicorns for Jordan in the 90s. The uh, 98 EX now, that's going to be a monster and a half. I've never seen one at auction, although I've seen a scan of the card. Uh, that one would break in serious six-figure numbers. I'm, I'm certain of it. But, uh, yeah, this this one being a, a big one. There's low, super low serial-numbered cards below, you know, in the two figures and, and less, like especially you can get down to like the 10 and less. That's when it starts to get really gnarly. Um, but this is a big, big card. Now, I, I can't confirm if the one I saw at the 2017 National was the exact one of this one. The print, I don't know the serial number on the one I saw as opposed to this one. I think the one I saw was one of, of 100, making mm -hmm. it the first of the 10. But I can't confirm. I can't remember. So this might be another of the 10 or another of the, the remaining nine, if you will, of the, the, the emeralds. These are... I mean, these cards are they're, they're monsters they really are and i like i said we talked about this in previous podcasts we kind of wish that baseball had these i wish that metal universe did these for baseball they're so cool that you know kind of missed that yes uh but really cool stuff i'm glad we got to talk about it because um such a big monster card and what a cool set the metal universe with all those cool like 
character style cartoon backgrounds and the player sort of like superimposed into the background. It's just such a great set for so many different reasons. So there you have it. 1997 Metal Universe PMG, the Emerald Jordan was listed and pulled after lots of shilling. Now I've bid on many and won many things from PWCC over the years. I'm a repeat customer and some of the stuff I've bid on has been shilled and I'll reach out and the person uh, will, you know, the customer service rep, I'll let them know like, Hey, this was shilled is, can you run this again and see if I can get it for, you know, an, an actual market value. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. So they'll relist it and I'll get it for at least that this happened one time. I got it for like 10 bucks less because there was less shilling. And the second time I didn't make a deal about it. I like just expected at some of these bigger auction houses, you're going to get some amount of shilling. It's an expectation. It's not the auction house's fault. I want to make that very clear. It's almost just like something that auction houses have to deal with. They have to find mm-hmm. ways to managing it. So I don't, I, I, I discourage people from putting any blame on auction houses for shill bidding. It's not their fault. Um, just know that, it's just something that all auction houses have to manage and deal with and find a way to, to minimize it as much as possible. So just want to make that a point. But moving on here, let's talk about the dangers of putting your signed cards in light, like cases and, you know, on display in your office, like on like little stands and things. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, let's, let's get one thing straight here. Light and ink, they don't go well together over time. Okay, when you put anything that has ink on it in light and let it and, and let it live there for a while, the ink will fade or deteriorate in some way. Even if you have it, I mean, you, you could avoid that by having like UV uh, protected cases. Like uh, Ultra Pro makes those uh, cubes for baseballs. I use them. Um, anything that's signed should be behind something that's UV protected. But just if you want to just dodge all that nonsense altogether with cards, just keep your signed cards, you know, in a dark place that's not, doesn't have minimal moisture, if, if any at all. Like try to minimize moisture as much as possible. But um, keep them in boxes and closets. Like put the stuff that you, you, you know, I would encourage people to put out is not signed cards, but cards that don't have any ink on them at all, you know. Um, I'm not the type that ever puts any cards on display. It's just not my style, but because I know what light does to just, just color (laughs) over the course of time. So, um, light exposure, if you're putting them in showcases, you might see some vendors having like pieces of tape or something over the cards because they don't want the light to hit the, the, the ink. So I've seen various cards that, that I grew up loving that are now, super super faded because in the 90s you know this wasn't like mainstream thinking and so a lot of the stuff that i grew up with that was pack issued from the mid early to mid to late 90s can be found now like super faded out so and you just know it was in a showcase for a long time i've bought a lot of this stuff over the years i have faded autographs from whatever and so i've seen this uh compared side by side and I, i even have a uh I have a framed Frank Thomas picture that it wasn't until like three years after owning it that I discovered that it has an autograph on it that's so faded you can't even really see it. Oh, man. Yeah. I just, I thought yeah. it was just a picture, and I was like, this is a cool framed item. And I, It was actually at the shop at which I used to work, Ryan, and, and 
um, the owner was, I asked him, I was like, what do you want for that? He's like, oh, it's 20 bucks. I'm like, it's a framed item. It probably cost me 20 bucks to get the frame alone. Like, I'm going to just grab uh, yeah. it. And it's actually autographed. But and I have it hung up in my office, but I don't care now because it's like, it's yeah, so it's, faded. It doesn't matter. It's just a picture gone. at this part. Yeah. And I had to really look closely to notice that there's like a little hairline from the ink left mm-hmm. over. That's all it was because it was sitting in a showcase for 20 years, you know, like a long time. Maybe not 20 years, probably actually like 15 years, I'd say. But whatever the case is that, you know, it sat under light for so long. It just, the, the, the autograph went to nothing. It went, it went away entirely. Like it's gone. Yeah. So I say every now and then I'll find something on eBay and it's, that's so faded. You have to just realize the resale on faded autographs is very low. So if you have something really high end and you want to maintain its investment potential, keep it out of the light at all costs. Like just don't put it under light. Even if it's artificial light, just keep it away from light. You know that, but that's just as somebody who pays really close attention to preservation of, of cards and, and, uh, you know, memorabilia and things. Um, I have to note this on sign stuff. So Ryan thoughts. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I met Nomar Garcia par when I was a kid at angel stadium and I got his autograph and he, I think he even wrote something to the effect of like, Hey Ryan, thanks for being a fan, something like that. Mm-hmm. So cool inscription. Um, but you know, as I got older, uh, the, the car just sort of sat in my, or the, the car, the balls sort of sat in my room and it faded over time. And that was probably like one of my favorite autograph pieces. And it's a hard lesson to learn. I also yeah. used a crappy pen. That was another <laughs> lesson to learn. But, uh, the point is he used the crayon. <laughs> yeah. You used the crayon. Um, <laughs> yeah, you got to protect the, the big autographs and any autographs. I know that, um, it looks really cool to display your signed pieces. Um, I'm I'm sort of in your camp. I don't really display my cards at all. I I display some some autograph balls, but I do have the UV protected right. cases. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, if, if but even if I if I had a huge signed ball, let's say like Mickey Mantle, for example. Yeah. Even if I had the UV protected case, I would still not display it. <laughs> well, here's the thing. So my mom in '92, we were visiting Hawaii, my family, and and my mom at a card shop, uh, she bought a Mickey Mantle signed ball for 75 bucks, yeah. and I have it here in my office because you know I just I'm keeping them for my mother because she, otherwise they just end up in a closet. So I was like, Mom, I'm just going to display them in my office, and if you want them back, just let me know. But I bought a UV protected ball and, and replaced the case. All the balls that I have that are signed in my office, they're in UV cubes because I don't know. I figured like it's not, they're not exposed to any sunlight. You know, there's minimal artificial light anywhere near them anyway. Um, and so um, I think in that case, in these set of circumstances, it's okay to do that. Balls you can get away with because of the UV protected cubes that are available. But with signed, cards i've seen more of that stuff as being like a threat in a lot of ways but also just more stuff to dust off that you how much how much you know housework do you really want to do you know and so sure and that stuff tips over it falls over easily doesn't like ball ball cubes they stack really well they're not easy like they're sturdy you know they're they're like architecturally sound 
Whereas like a stand with like a PSA case, if you touch something wrong, it's like dominoes, you know, everything just falls over and then you got to deal with putting them back up and you're like, oh my gosh, it tipped over and the card inside, like shuffled around about, like I make sure it's still good. Like I don't want to deal with any of that. Like I, none of it. So I just, I file everything in two row, you know, graded car boxes and things get housed in, in, in a locked, you know, safe essentially. And so it's, um, in my own collection, I just don't prefer to put on cards on display in any capacity whatsoever. Um, unless they're like junk wax commons that are framed inside of like a frame talking about the player or something. I have a Griffey thing from when I got one back in like the early nineties, I just kept it and it's got, I just put in a couple of like low end 91 cards in there just because it's, I don't really care about the cards. It's just the cards are supplementary to what the framed item theme is, you know? And so, um, I'm not telling collectors or listeners to, to do X, Y, and Z with their collections. I'm just saying it, it would be wise to keep your signed items out of lights exposure in any capacity where it be natural um, or artificial, but especially natural light. And if you're going to put them under artificial light, just make sure to get UV protected glass or plastic just to protect those autographs the best way you can. Absolutely. So don't leave them out in the sun on a yeah, hot day. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on here. Uh, so on eBay, you might have seen the, what are called ACEO cards, which are essentially custom made cards um, by artists, I guess that are just anybody, you know, this is an interesting topic. I had to, Look it up for myself. All right. It's, it stands for Art Card Originals and Editions. Mm. Or it could be Art Cards, Art Card Editions and Originals, if you want to, like, organize the acronym accordingly. Right. But they're not licensed. They're essentially illegal because, because they're not licensed. They're like modern-day broders, right? And some of these are actually considered counterfeits because they're exact replicas of the originals i would stay far far away from them uh, especially with high-end high dollar cards let's talk about this for a minute significant cards should always only be purchased uh, as graded examples because you can you can fend away on a higher probability the the chance of buying fakes and so you could save money right so like the 86 Fleer Jordan, the 84 Fleer Update Clemens, um, even the 85 Topps McGuire, uh, the 86 Donruss Conseco. Granted, you see a lot less uh, counterfeits of that now, but they exist. I have one. Uh, the 84 Donruss uh, Mattingly, you know, and so certain cards are susceptible to being faked because of their value. And so that's another conversation that's that's beyond the custom card thing. That's just protecting your investment, protecting your purchase by buying an authenticated version of the card. Now, ACEO are custom-made cards, and sometimes they could be exact replicas of the originals. Like Tom Brady stuff right now is really hot, and you can, see, you can find in any number of any, any day ACEO cards you know, um, using designs from like 89 Don Russ, and they've got a modern version, a modern picture of brady on it these are all illegal cards because the people producing them don't have the license approval to produce these images on these cards 
because they're using team logos and team names. Whenever you're doing that and selling them for profit, you're actually breaking the law by doing that. And I'm not even an attorney. I can't even give out legal advice, but it would be my understanding that because you don't have the right or the permission, the approval to do that, um, and you're profiteering off of it, it is, it would be considered illegal. Ryan thoughts. Yeah. It's, it's very confusing. And if you go on, on eBay and you look up, uh, a CEO and any player, like I just looked up Michael Jordan, for example. Yeah. And there's all sorts of nonsense on here. It can be very confusing to someone that doesn't quite yeah. know what's going on. Right. And ACEO, you know, maybe they think it's like an acronym for a product name or something. And the first thing I thought of when I was, when I was researching this was was the idea of the reprint because you do see that a lot. You see reprints of famous cards. Um, They're not okay. Real quick, Ryan, I have to distinguish between a reprint and a counterfeit. They're, these are two separate things. That's what I wanted to distinguish against was because. I mean, so they've been reprinting cards for many years. They're they're in twenty, I don't know, seventeen. They reprinted Mike Trout's twenty eleven. Oh yeah, Topps well, card. But so like out. the reprint, the reprints, you can only use that title if you're a licensed brand like Topps or Upper Deck or Panini. Exactly. I, I mean, you, if you're a brand producing cards in the market, you can use that title on a card you're producing for commemorative sake. Heck, twenty nineteen. Tops, they're doing a whole line that that, that replicates. It's, it's similar to the cards your mom threw out line. That's just all reproductions of classic rookie cards that has that have come out in the last couple of years, and those are considered reprints, but for the commemorative sake. And on the backs, they have different yes. backs, and they talk about the card. That's legitimate. Those are all licensed. All legit. Those are all legitimate yeah, reprints. Exactly. But guys like like Ryan, if you and I got together, like, hey Ryan, let's get together and produce some quote unquote reprints of the '86 Fleer Jordan just for a goof. Those would not be considered reprints. Those are considered counterfeits because we don't exactly. have the licensing, the permission to produce that card or those cards. Even if we turn yep. them if we the, on the back in small print saying, you know, reprint, we'd still be like offenders of counterfeit production mm -hmm. because we'd be making money on basically the images and the likenesses of the players and the team names and the team logos. So I, 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 I don't buy any of the ACO stuff. Here's the thing. Not all sports car collectors are ethical people. Let's just focus on that. Let's just out, out, out the door. Like most people are by and large good. I can say that. Like on eBay, I know that. Like I have my feedback trend like rate is like 4,000 plus. But, and, and, and I, you know, I have 100% feedback rate. I've dealt with mostly good people. Like the statistics are very much in our favor for good transactions. But there are some guys in the hobby that are unscrupulous. And so it, it ends up in the hobby and somebody got ripped off. So I, I don't I don't I don't like seeing the quote unquote reprints made by, you know, John Doe in his garage, like just right doing this just because he wants to like rip somebody off. This happens, you know, and so um Yeah, it just creates more even if problems. you know what's going on with, with this situation. Yeah. It just creates more clutter and noise to cut through when yeah. you're looking for things to purchase. Right. Because especially if you're looking for a popular player or a popular card or a popular product, uh, these things are bound to show up. Um, and I always just put myself in the shoes of someone that's just sort of getting in the game, doesn't really know what's going on. They look up Michael Jordan rookie card 
and they see something selling for five dollars and they go, oh, my God, what a what a steal. And it's it's like, I don't know, it, it just rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's a problem. For, it's it's a problem for for the hobby in the sense that, you know, if I'm new and I see this and I'm like, I'm going to get it. And it's I say I pay 10 bucks for something that shouldn't be worth 10 cents. And then I'm like, then I, I go to my friends, look what I got. And they're like, dude, you bought a fake card. Like, no, no, no. The yeah. guy said it was real. Was like, no, no, you, you, dude, nobody's going to charge you $10 for an 86 Jordan. Sorry. Like they're going to charge you like a thousand dollars for it. Right. So it's like, like that happens. And then it makes me feel like, oh my gosh, I got ripped off. Maybe this hobby's full of jerks. You know, maybe I don't want to be a part of it. So it's bad for the morale, the hobby that, that quote unquote reprints exist in that way. And the ACO stuff, like you said, I have to just filter that stuff through my searches and I have to find a way to filter it out. I've got negative search all over the place. So I just filter this stuff out because I don't want to see it. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't care. I don't care that somebody made an 89 Don Russ Frank Thomas card. Honestly, I just, I don't keep it, keep it on your computer. I don't want to see it because it's not licensed. You know, it's, it's just like a novelty thing. I've got some of that stuff in my collection because of the people that made them. I'm, I'm friends with them. So I'm like, yeah, I'd like a copy just so I know that I, I had some, some of your work. But 99.9% .9 of it, I'm just, I don't want to see it. I think it's just, it's it's not good for the, the hobby when people, the, the people that are making this stuff aren't supposed to be selling it. The people that are buying this stuff are, they can't turn it around for, for profit if they wanted to. And so um, that's that stuff just, it impacts the hobby negatively. And that would be both yes. my opinion and also my perception of how it's going. So I hope I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you are right. <laughs> okay. Uh, moving on here. Let's talk about, you know, grading companies grade a lot of different things. And I think it's cool, like photos and balls and cards and flats and helmets. And, they, you know, things are authenticated. But certain things I don't think need slabs because it's just kind of awkward. A sealed box of cards I don't think needs a slab. There's this company that, that slabs sealed boxes. And I'm like, man, what a weird thing to store. <laughs> do you get like a comic box and, and stand them upright or do you stack them or? No clue. Like That's this is an odd. odd kind of. See, if I had a grading company and I was slabbing sealed boxes, I would make little clamshells for them. And then I'd they'd clamp shut and then they're sealed. And then they're like, they have a little like flip that's behind the sealed box, like as in its own little interior. That way you can stack the bricks like cubes, baseball cubes. But, there you go. Yeah, that would just, if I were to do in the grading thing, that's how I would slab the sealed boxes thing. But I don't know how much there's a market for sealed boxes that are slabbed. I just have a hard time with this. This is a real weird, I'm still getting used to it. Like it's odd. And I don't even think it, this company that's sealing, that's, that's grading them, I don't even think they're around anymore. But um, Ryan, have you seen some of these? <laughs> I have seen some of them. Um, I, I think the, the farthest I would go with, with grading things that are not individual cards would be a graded pack. I think that's kind of cool. That is kind of cool. Even then it's, it's a little cumbersome. It is. You brought up the issue of storage. Um, great. A graded pack is obviously not a huge obstacle for storage, but, right. um, it does bring up a couple issues. Um, but yeah, a box, a slab box is something I don't think I'd ever <laughs> want to deal with. And I've, I've had, um, so weird. like when I was younger, I had a few, um, 
like autographed photos of players that would come with authentication slips in the back. And that's all you need. You just need a little slip that need. says authenticated by so-and-so. Maybe autograph from uh, the authenticator or like the CEO of the company. Right. But you don't need like an encapsulated <laughs> plastic thing, you know? I think that all um, graded card cases should be the size of small refrigerators. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that because it's super space efficient. You can stack the refrigerators. You can yes. put at least three or four of them in a single room. So if you have more than three to four, you just got to find another room. That's all you need is another room. Easy. So, easy. It's easy. Just get it done. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, the public storage place near my house is actually running a deal right now. So Oh, yeah. You can put at least I'll four just... or five more in there. Easy. Yeah. There you go. And if you need it, if you need more storage, just get another room. You know, get another storage space. Uh, they should have also like every 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 case that you open should have a smaller case within like those little tiny like um, ornamental like what do they call those? You remember those little like doll, like a Russian doll or something? Yeah, right. <laughs> and it gets down to the small little case that holds the card. That would be really efficient. Great use of money for the manufacturer side point too. Um, yes. Moving on here. Auctions for sealed packs with guaranteed hits in them. This is really fishy stuff. Like, really greaseball for me. Because Oof. how do you guarantee anything in a pack it without don't. without opening it, pulling something, and putting something back, resealing it, and selling it unscrupulously? This is the question. It's not rhetorical. Like, I'm actually asking you, like, how would you guarantee that the buyer is going to get anything? It guaranteed Super Fractor one of one auto. Like, how can you do that? That's just completely. It's just, but what that is to me is a black and white lie to your buyer. Mm -hmm. Like right out in the open, it's like having a sign. It's like I'm lying. Exclamation point. You know, with like like one of those old like '60s hotel signs with the arrows pointing down and blinking. You know. Like, I'm lying to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Auctions for yeah. sealed packs with guaranteed hits is something that you automatically want to stay away from because there's no way to guarantee anything in a pack if it's been unopened. But I see it all the time. You know, guaranteed, like you said, one-on-one, guaranteed autographs, guaranteed whatever. And you, you literally can't guarantee anything in, it, in a pack of cards except for that you'll get Cards and sports cards. <laughs> the only guarantee exactly. is you're going to come away with some sports cards. Because if you buy something, you need to have something to show for it. Otherwise, it's considered gambling, and gambling is illegal. And so if you're putting money toward anything, the guarantee is that you're going to get some tangible asset from in exchange for that monetary transaction. And if you're guaranteeing something you actually, in fact, don't know what you're going to get you actually are lying to your prospective buyer and it makes you look bad. And look, we all want to look good, right? The people like collectors, you know, should want to look good to their prospective buyers and their prospective sellers and whatever else we want to like, you know, have pleasant transactions and pleasant interactions. And, you know, if it's good for the health of the community back in 2011, I started buying signed Frank Thomas cards that were unauthenticated on eBay. And I, I bought one, and then I was like, cool. And then another one surfaced. like, oh, I guess I got to get that one. This happened for like a month. And after a while, I was like, a lot of these are coming from the same seller. I'm not so sure that all these are real, or if any. So now I have a bunch of signed Frank Thomas cards, and a lot of them are, if not all of them, that, that block of them from that, that, that time anyway. But they're probably all fake. Mm -hmm. But you've got somebody producing something knowing that there's a return value on 
what you're producing, knowing that also what you're producing is fake. Yes. And the, 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 I'm not saying the pack here is fake, but I'm saying the guarantee is illegitimate. The guarantee mm-hmm. is the fake thing. The guarantee is the counterfeit. You can't guarantee anything out of a pack except for the, the guarantee that you're going to rip off a buyer. That's yep. the guarantee. Um, and so I, I just want to talk about this because I see this every now and then on eBay. Someone will have to sell a pack of Bowman Chrome and they'll say a guaranteed super fragrance. It's like, well, if it's such a guaranteed super, why don't you open it? You know, like, yeah, exactly. Why don't you why open you it and then sell the, the card? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's actually like $300 is what they try to get from like hundreds of dollars. And so it's, it's, I just stay away from this stuff. You know, I don't, there's certain things in the hobby I love and certain things I just stay away from at all costs. Yeah. And uh, Dutch auctions, that's, I don't do those. I did one once just for a goof and it was a total letdown and never do it again. Uh, guaranteed sealed packs, custom and quote unquote reprint stuff, stuff, a lot of stuff we talked about in this podcast, actually, I don't, I'm not interested in owning at all, touching or even having anything to do with. So yeah, I mean, we, we have touched on a lot of the seedier aspects of the hobby, yeah. which are unfortunate. Right. Um, but and I, I know we've said this before, but if, if you're going to buy something and you're unsure about it, it's it's always safe just to wait for a graded example. All right. Um, especially when you go back into the more vintage sort of cards. All right. If you're skeptical at all, and it's a raw copy. It's not graded. Um, perhaps best to stay away. You know. Well, I, the thing um, is, well, the thing is that grading doesn't completely remove the probability of buying something sure. fake. I mean, grading companies right. are, are, you know, they're run by humans, and humans are error makers. Everybody is, myself included. You too. I mean, we're just that's as as humans. That's just how we are. We're not robots. So as graders come in and go, there's some graders that are more knowledgeable than others, and those that might not be as knowledgeable might accidentally authenticate a fake autograph. I've seen uh, uh, Frank Thomas cards signed with fake autographs slabbed by PSA over the years many, many times. Do I blame PSA? I don't blame PSA. I blame the hiring manager at PSA <laughs> that hired the grader. You know, like that's kind of who I would blame. Not the br- I wouldn't blame the, the brand, though, because... The brand is too big to blame, you know, for probably a very small, tiny, little, insignificant percentage of stuff that comes out that's not not real, you know. And so I I I don't go that extreme. Like, oh, I'm not gonna deal with PSA because they graded something that's not real. Like, I'm not like I'm, I just realize like humans make mistakes, and we should understand that, and we try to just minimize the chances of making those mistakes as much as we can. But they're they're never completely removed, especially when we get into like the large volume type movers, right? So finding a slabbed Frank Thomas card that has a fake autograph on it is not completely uncommon. Obviously, I see more raw ones, but, you know, it's just one of those things you just have to like dodge and know your autographs as, as best you can. And the other thing, like you said, Ryan, if you're looking to invest high dollar figures in something, just do homework, a lot of it. Like if you're buying a yes. 52 Mantle, a 51 Bowman Mantle, you know, a Ruth, Gehrig, make sure it's authenticated. Make sure it's being sold by a reputable dealer. Talk to the dealer if you can. Maybe get them on the phone. Hey, I'm about to spend 50 grand with you. I'd like to get you on the phone. Can you want to discuss like aspects of the card? Have you seen it like raw before it was slabbed? How'd it look? You know, and just discuss these things because your money's, you know, it's, it's, you, you work hard for it. 
And so you want to make sure that if you spend it, you spend it in a very uh, smart way. When especially with sports mm -hmm. collectibles and sports collectibles hobby, the market is just we. It's just full of unethical people. I mean, it's not. I'm just like full. I mean, just it's kind of a loose term because it's not full of them. There's just a lot of them in the the market. But I believe that by and large, most people are basically good. And so, mm -hmm. but every now and then you're going to run into somebody who's not, and you just have to dodge. You have to find a way to dodge that as best you can. You know, just, just do your homework, spend some time, do research, understand the card, understand the autograph, understand the seller, the grading company. Just, you know, try to make the most out of your purchase the best way you can. So I'm going to leave you at that. I think that's a good ender for this podcast. Ryan, do you have any extra thoughts you want to share? Uh, I guess one extra thought uh, regarding our last little bullet point. Uh, there was a great short little ESPN documentary about some forgeries happening during the home run race between McGuire and Sosa yeah. in 1998. Yeah. I think it's on YouTube. Anybody can watch it. Um, perhaps we can link to it in the description for the podcast, but um, check it out. It's it's just like another angle on the kind of shady side of the hobby, and uh, perhaps it'll you know, make you a little more weary of, of things that seem dubious to you when you're trying to make a purchase. So, so, so I, I blogged about that about a year ago. I've got it. Okay, it's embedded on a blog post. So what I'll do is I'll just link to it in, the, in a, an article and you can go straight and watch it. It's Greg Marino. He's one of the greatest forgers of all time. In fact, some of his forgers are so good that they're kept in uh, Cooperstown. And of course, in Cooperstown, it's labeled, yeah, forgery by Greg Marino, that kind of thing. But so he's so good at it that I wouldn't know if, if someone compared it with a real one. I, I wouldn't have a – I just wouldn't know. And so um, – and this is – I mean, some, some forgeries are really good. They just are. And, and sadly, it's at the, the loss. It's at the peril of the buyer. You have to just know. It's caveat emptor, right? It's like buyer beware. You know your stuff before you buy it, you know? And so – a good. I think it's a good ender. Um, thank you, for, Ryan, for for jumping on this podcast with me as always. And I like your feedback. I appreciate the stuff we talked about. And I hope that the listeners hope you guys can kind of like feel a little bit more at ease with some of the stuff. Maybe feel a little bit more confident after listening to us. You know, jabber on and on about some of this um, sort of unethical stuff in the <laughs> hobby. Thank you for tuning in the Rowdy Cards podcast on RowdyCards.com. I'm your host Patrick Reno, and until next time, enjoy collecting. If you like this content, please subscribe. Thank you. Enjoy collecting.